I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Uh, we've been very delicate about religion <laughs> long now um, because one of our guidelines is take no sides and sometimes religions get into taking sides. Um, but on the other hand, we would love it if pilgrimages happened to our clocks and we have to notice that we pay close attention to very long-lived institutions and some of the religions have that quality. Religions help people take their whole life, their whole generational life seriously. So religions usually have something to do when somebody is born, something to do when they marry, something to do when they die. And no other institutions have stepped up to that so well and so long. Christianity is one of these religions. It's been around quite a while. Um, built on a, a you know, there's the New Testament, there's the Old Testament. Some people say the the Jews invented history. The Old Testament is a book of history. Um, it's a whole culture and practice based on a sense of history. Before that, history didn't exist. It was just all cyclic. And I would guess you could say that long now is, is, uh, is into sequence of events. It's into looking forward. And the most remarkable book in some ways of the New Testament, the strangest book, is a looking forward. Uh, it's a story, a book of Revelation, that's been told for two millennia now with enormous impact. And there's a biblical scholar who's been looking at that, um, Elaine Pagels. She wants tonight to be um, a lot of conversation, so many questions from you will help. She'll speak for just 30 or 40 minutes, and then with your questions on these cards, uh, we'll get into it. Getting papers. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here and talk about the strangest book in the Bible. It's certainly the most controversial one. This book actually doesn't have narrative in it. It doesn't have ethical teachings. It doesn't have sermons. Really, it's all visions. It's, it's dreams and nightmares. In case you haven't read it lately, I thought we'd do a very quick uh, sort of Cliff Notes version of the book and what's in it. And I chose some of the art that it's inspired to show a sense of its cultural impact, which is, as, as Stuart said, enormous. So the book opens as the author, his, he calls himself John, uh, we call him John of Patmos because he said he was writing on a small island off the coast of today's Turkey. He said he was in the spirit, that is, he was in an ecstatic trance one day, and, and he heard a voice behind him. It sounded like huge rushing waters. He turned around, and, and he saw a divine being speaking to him. Now, John thought this divine being was Jesus of Nazareth, um, and he, he was come back from the dead. And this divine being said he was going to tell John what's going to happen next. Um, John said this divine being told him uh, that 
God was about to come and make war on all the evil powers on the earth and destroy them once and for all uh, and bring the kingdom of God. The next thing John said was he saw, he looked up in the sky and he saw a door open and a voice said, come up here. So somehow he said he didn't know if he was in the body or not, but he went up and he said he went up into heaven and he was allowed to see the throne of God and it looked to him the way the prophet Ezekiel had seen it, uh, blazing with light. It was, it was lightning and it was rainbows, sapphires and jewels, uh, blazing fire and thunder, uh, loud noises gleaming like rainbows and emeralds and a sea of glittering crystal. And he said next to it there was a slaughtered lamb who said, I'm going to show you what must take place after this. Then John said, Trumpets began to sound that were blown by angels, and four horsemen of the apocalypse came forth. The first one was on a white horse, a pale horse. It was given a sword uh, to bring war all over the earth and kill a third of the inhabitants of the earth. John said the second one was on a fiery red horse, and it received a sword um, for slaughter so that people would slaughter one another. The third one was on a black horse, and it brought famine, death, drought all over the world. And finally, the fourth horse uh, was given power to uh, kill through wild animals and horrifying uh, destruction. But John says before the action would begin, he saw the souls of all the people who'd been slaughtered for the sake of their witness to God. And the souls were standing on the the throne of God and they were crying out in a loud voice. And what they said was, Sovereign Lord, how long? How long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the people of the earth? And he said, at that point, a star fell from heaven and opened a shaft of the pit below the earth. And out of it came giant locusts with human faces and women's hair streaming behind them, led by Abaddon, the angel of the abyss, a monstrous army. And John said, then he looked up in heaven and he saw two signs, great signs. One of them was a woman, clothed with the sun. She was hugely pregnant, writhing in the pain of giving birth. And as she was about to give birth to the Messiah, she was being stalked by a great red dragon, He's not quite so red here in Blake's, William Blake's version. But, but the dragon was waiting to devour the child the moment that it was born. John said as he watched the woman escaped, the child was caught up into heaven and he saw something shocking. He saw war break out in heaven. So Michael and his archangels were fighting against the dragon and his angels and the dragon and his angels were thrown out of heaven. This is the story Milton tells in Paradise Lost. They're thrown out of heaven, and the dragon is furious. He's thrown down to earth and begins to make war all over the earth. John said now the cosmic war was reaching its climax, and the dragon is now back on earth, and he called forth two allies who were hideous beasts. They don't look so bad here. This is uh, Leviathan and Behemoth, a male and female pair of dragons, according to Jewish legend. Um, But John said when he saw these monstrous beasts uh, in his vision, one of them had seven heads and crowns on all of its heads, and it came out of the sea, and it was given power to dominate the world. And next there was a great red beast, 
with a mysterious number, and you know the number, it's 666, John said it's a human number, and he dares his readers to understand it. Finally, he said back in heaven, he saw six angels, and each angel was carrying an enormous bowl. Each bowl was full of God's wrath. And as each trumpet would sound, each angel began to pour God's wrath on earth and terrible things happened. Uh, John says that the sixth angel poured the bowl of God's wrath right where the Tigris River meets the Euphrates, uh, right over Israel's ancient enemy, Babylon. And at that moment... Um, all the demons of hell assemble. The seventh angel pours his bowl of God's wrath. Thunder, lightning, the most violent earthquake that has ever occurred. And the people of Babylon uh, die in agony as they curse God. John says next, he saw a vision of Babylon, the way the prophet Isaiah had seen Israel's ancient enemy uh, as a whore. Well, She doesn't look so bad on the left over here, but she is a whore, and she's riding on a a beast with seven heads and crowns on its heads, and she's drinking from a golden cup, but what she's drinking is blood. It's the blood of innocent people. This is a contemporary version of the whore of Babylon. And now he's close to the final act. He said, Jesus comes forth from heaven as a divine warrior on a white horse, leading all the armies of heaven to strike down the nations and tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And John said, then he watched, and the forces joined in battle, and everyone who fought against God was killed. Satan was thrown into a pit. The dragon was chained. The beasts were thrown into a lake of fire to burn forever. Jesus came back in the sky to judge the living and the dead. And he casts the the evildoers into a pit of eternal fire. And the blessed ones are invited into a kingdom of Jerusalem that descends from heaven where they rule with Jesus for a thousand years. Now, that's the story. You might be wondering, who was John and what was he thinking? This book, as you know, is famously hard to understand. But it helps to know that that it's wartime literature. John was writing about the year 90 of the first century. He was writing as a refugee, probably, from a Jewish revolution against Roman rule. Uh, It's rather like the American revolution against British rule, uh, against an oppressive empire. And... The Jewish revolution was fought. The the motto was in the name of God and our common liberty. But the the revolutionaries were unlike the American revolution. They were completely destroyed when 60,000 Roman troops marched into Jerusalem and raped and slaughtered and killed the inhabitants of Jerusalem and totally destroyed the, the center of the city. Those of you who've been to Jerusalem today have seen, probably, as as I recently saw again, uh, these enormous stones, they're almost as big as this theater, which, which the Romans threw down 2,000 years ago. The Roman troops destroyed the entire center city um, as they destroyed the temple of God, which was the center of that, of that holy city. Now, John was a follower of Jesus, and he believed that 
that Jesus was about to come back uh, and rule uh, in the kingdom of God that would now descend from heaven and Jesus of Nazareth would be the ruler of the world. Uh, he would rule from Jerusalem as God's Messiah. That sounds unlikely. But if you ask John, how could you possibly believe that? Because by the time he was writing, Jesus had been dead for 60 years. Uh, and you know he was crucified and tortured by the Romans for sedition against the Roman Empire. So how could anyone believe that Jesus was going to come back to life and rule the world? Well, John would have said, we have proof that, that he was a true prophet. And he prophesied. These terrible things that happened, the destruction of Jerusalem when it was surrounded with armies and it was destroyed, was something Jesus had said would happen 30 years before it happened. If you know the Gospels of the New Testament, they say that when Jesus walked through the city of Jerusalem, he said to his followers, you see these great temples, you see these great buildings, they're, they're all going to be thrown down. And the armies are going to surround Jerusalem and they're going to be completely destroyed. So Jesus had prophesied the unthinkable. I was thinking sometimes if somebody had said, um, I, was, I live near New York, you know, and if somebody had said in 1970 that the World Trade Towers would be destroyed in minutes, I mean, that's just crazy, right? And, but if somebody had said that in 1970, in the year 2001, when it happened, they might have said, that man was a prophet. Anyway, John believed that Jesus had prophesied this unthinkable destruction of the holy city and the people of God. So he said, and, and Jesus had also said, well, after that happens, the kingdom of God is going to come. So Jews who followed Jesus, like John of Patmos, um, were not only horrified by the war, but they also were excited because they thought, he said it would happen, and he said it would happen within a generation, and now it must be that the kingdom of God that he said would happen is also about to come. So it was at that point that the followers of Jesus began to write the books they called the Gospels and try to propagate the teaching of Jesus to persuade people that the end of time was coming very soon, and they waited for Jesus to come and take power. But... Of course, this happened 30 years after Jesus died. Now, John went off to Asia Minor, which is now Turkey and Syria, the, those areas of the world. He went there, and he, he traveled for 10 years, and 15 years, and 20 years, and then it was 30 years. And now it was two generations after Jesus had said that the kingdom of God was to come within the lifetime of the people who were his contemporaries. But... When John traveled through Asia Minor, he, he could see what you could see. Oh, this is another version of, of the Last Judgment, sorry. When he traveled to the great port city of Ephesus, he could see what you'd probably see today if you walk into the great portal of the city. He would have seen that the kingdom that had come with power wasn't the kingdom of God. It was actually Rome. He would have seen that the reigning emperor, this is Domitian, had a statue 20 times the size of a human figure uh, standing on, on the, the, the great walk that leads into the city of Ephesus. This is Domitian. And it was Domitian's father, Vespasian, who had been the military commander that had marched into Jerusalem with 60,000 troops and destroyed it. 
It was Vespasian's brother Titus who had uh, completed the, the destruction of Jerusalem and Titus' soldiers had set fire to the great temple of God. So now this unholy trio, from John's point of view, is ruling the world. These are the people that are ruling the world. And if he had traveled to a little city of Aphrodisias near there, he would have seen a kind of building you can see today. This is it's called the Temple of the Holy Ones, the Sebastian. Now, Augustus... Uh, at the beginning of the first century, had perfected a kind of architecture that was really imperial propaganda for Rome's power. This is, uh, so you would see a prominent panel that you could see actually from uh, miles away, huge. Um, This is a panel showing Augustus. He's naked to show that he's among the gods. He had died, of course, by this time. And you see him ruling over land and sea. And then if you walked around the Sebastian, which still stands uh, in Aphrodisias, you would see 30 panels like this. Another one, this one here, is Emperor Claudius, uh, also naked to show that he's a god, but armed. Uh, And he is about to slit the throat of a naked female slave. Um, She's lifting her hand to ward off the death blow, which she can't. And she is Britain. Because that's the way Roman architects and artists pictured the the countries they captured. And then if you went to the next panel, you would see Emperor Nero about to humiliate and, and destroy a female slave who represents Armenia, for example. So now you could walk around 30 panels and see the 30 nations that the Romans conquered. Uh, and you should be suitably impressed. Unless maybe you were like John. Um, because John, of course, belonged to one of those nations, belonged to the nation of Judea that the Romans had destroyed. And it's not an accident, I suggest, that it was while he was near this kind of temple and this kind of grandiose propagandistic architecture uh, of the Roman Empire that he said he received his first vision, uh, the vision of Jesus. And... What John did, to put it really simply, in the book of Revelation is he he drew on all the resources of his own people, that is, the Jewish traditions of the prophets, to write, you could call it anti-Roman propaganda. I mean, it's more than that. But it was also, it was, um, it was literature designed to fight the kind of propaganda that he had seen propagated by the, Roman, um, the Romans to celebrate their great empire. So he drew on the prophecies of, say, the prophet Isaiah, who had pictured uh, Israel's ancient enemy, Babylon, as a monster, as a beast. Uh, the prophet Daniel, who pictured the other nations who conquered Israel as four great, horrible-looking monsters. Um, the prophet Jeremiah had pictured Egypt, or the the Pharaoh, who was another sort of classical image of Israel's foreign conquerors, as as a great sea monster that the that God would spear and slaughter and and scatter its body all over the world, just the way the people of Jerusalem had been scattered all over the world. So what John did was 
take all of those images of the whore, the beast, the monsters, and basically uh, rewrite it to say, well, now Rome is the new Babylon, the new Egypt, the new monster, the, the power of evil in the world. And even though it rages like a monster, even though it's decadent as a whore, it's going to be destroyed when God triumphs. That's basically what he tells in this book. I came to experience the power of this book when I was about 14. Uh, When I joined an evangelical church, I went to an evangelical rally in San Francisco. As a matter of fact, my parents were horrified, Um, especially horrified that I loved it. Um, I fell right into it. The intensity, the, the way... The singing was very powerful. The conviction that people shared, um, it was remarkable. And there was a sense of a spiritual dimension that I was told didn't exist. So I joined that that evangelical group, and and I went to this church for about a year. Um, And I found it very powerful. And after that time, uh, the people in the church told me that one of my friends was going to hell because he was Jewish. And I realized that had nothing to do with what had attracted me to this church. So I left. Um, but, but years later, I kept thinking there was something about that experience that was very powerful. What is it about religion, not just this kind, not just Christianity, but any religion that is so remarkable and powerful? How do people get drawn to it? So... A long time later, I went off to graduate school with the naive idea that if I did, I could find out how Christianity started um, and what had drawn me into that kind of Christianity and why I had to leave it. So I began to read Greek um, and, and, and start to read the early Christian writings. But when I got to graduate school, as many of you know, I was really astonished because my professor had file cabinets full of gospels I'd never heard of. And they also had books of Revelation I'd never heard of, uh, many of them. And so now we know that John's book of Revelation is not unique. It's not the only book of Revelation, although it's the only one that most of us had heard of. It's really one of an outpouring of books of Revelation that were written between the first and third century. They were written by Jews. uh, They were written by Christians. They were written by Egyptians and Greeks, um, all kinds of books of Revelation. And these other books of Revelation are really quite different. So I gave you a handout, which is a sample, um, because I realized when I was writing about John's book of Revelation, I'd have to put it in counterpoint with these others. Because I was asking myself, well, why, why did this one get into the New Testament? And, and these others uh, were all basically... Uh, censored or destroyed. So for just a minute, we'll look at the ones on the handout. We can't talk about them much because I want to be speak briefly so we can start a conversation. It's hard to generalize about the other books of Revelation. They're quite different from one another. But one thing you do find in common is that most of them are not about the end of the world. Most of them are not about uh, the day of judgment except the Revelation of Ezra, which is the first one. The Revelation of Ezra was written by another Jewish prophet, um, 
the author of the, the revelation of Ezra was not a follower of Jesus, but like John, he does write about the end of the world. He writes about the day of judgment. He writes about God's justice, and he, he begins writing for the same reason John does, in agony over the destruction of Jerusalem. As you see the opening of the book there, he says he couldn't sleep at night. He was, he was distressed and distraught because of the destruction of his people in war. And he says that God sent him visions. And then he went out into the fields and ate only uh, some kind of plant and had many visions, uh, which are <laughs> recorded in, that's the case, in Fourth Ezra. This is only a beginning of the book of Ezra. I find it an absolutely amazing book. Um, but there are also other books of Revelation that are quite different from this. One of them that I like is the Revelation of Zastrianos. You have there the opening. These are quite personal revelations. Uh, Zastrianos is written by a young man named Zastrianos, apparently. He says he was tormented by doubts and questions. He couldn't find any answers. He, he was very depressed, he said, and he was re resolved to kill himself. But as he just went out in the desert to kill himself... He said he was stealing himself to do it, and he became aware of a presence that radiated light. And he said the presence illuminated him and released him from despair. And this line I thought is so beautiful. He said, I realized that the power in me was greater than the darkness because it contained the whole light. There's another revelation found in the same discovery that's called Thunder Perfect Mind, or actually Thunder Complete Mind. And Thunder Complete Mind is spoken, this is the beginning of it you have there. It's a, it's a poem. It's spoken in the voice of a feminine divine power who, who um, incorporates all the opposite attributes. She says, uh, I am the first and the last. I am the whore, I am the holy one, I am war, I am peace, I am shameless, I am unashamed. She speaks, uh, she says, in everyone, and she speaks everywhere. This is an amazing poem. If you haven't read it, you may find it, uh, you can find it on the internet. Uh, and many artists, from Toni Morrison to Leslie Marmon Silco, and many other artists have used it in film, used it in many ways in music, um, and remarkable ways. Or take a look at the secret revelation of John. This one is, was found with the secret gospels, and it claims that it's quite different. Here, the disciple John is grieving after the death of Jesus. And like Zastrianos, he has a kind of crisis and a kind of breakthrough. These other revelation texts, by the way, remind me of what you find if you look at William James' Uh, the American psychologist who wrote The Varieties of Religious Experience, and, he, and William James, who wrote about um, religious experience because he had come out of a serious depression um, himself by clinging to some religious phrases that he didn't believe, but he, he became convinced that there's a great deal of power in certain kinds of crisis and spiritual breakthrough. And he wrote the book, uh, The Varieties of Religious Experience. Many of those uh, sound a lot like what you find in these ancient texts. So the secret revelation of John says that the disciple John was, after the, the death of Jesus, he was grieving. He felt that maybe he'd followed a false prophet. He went out in the desert 
confused and upset and distraught, uh, thinking the whole thing was wrong. And he said suddenly he saw a blazing light and he heard a voice speaking to him and it was the voice of Jesus saying to him, John, John, why do you, why do you weep? Why are you afraid? I am the one who's with you always. I am the father, I am the mother, and I am the son. And then it goes on. Uh, it's a very long revelation text in which John speaks to Jesus and asks him questions. Um, and one of the questions is, Christ, will the souls of everyone live in the pure light? And, and Jesus says to him, yes, the souls of everyone will live in the pure light because if, if, if you didn't have God's spirit, you could not even stand up. So one of the differences between these kinds of revelations and the revelation of John uh, in the New Testament is that John's revelation in the New Testament is about the saved and the damned. It's about a cosmic war in which good against evil... Uh, Stuart talked about not taking sides. Well, this book is all about taking sides. But the other revelations are actually universal. Uh, if you look at the one called Trimorphic Protonoia, it's about a divine voice. Uh, it's in the Greek, uh, Trimorphic Protonoia means the triple-formed primal thought. And, and this is a thought that, that the revelation says occurs to everyone. She says, I cry out in everyone. Um, it's the divine voice that speaks in everyone. And just as John's uh, secret revelation says, the spirit comes to everyone, these all speak about a universal vision of human beings. In fact, not just human beings, but humans, animals, stones, rocks, and stars. It's a very different kind of vision. We don't have time to go into that now, but we can talk about it later. In the early days of the Christian movement, though, John's book of Revelation became intensely popular. And one of the reasons it did, I think, is that the people who loved it best, as you can imagine, were followers of Jesus who were being arrested and tortured and killed uh, because they were followers of Jesus who had, after all, been convicted of sedition against Rome. So the Roman magistrates were naturally suspicious uh, of more sedition, uh, more inciting to revolution by Jews, and they uh, arrested and tortured these people. And so it was John's book of prophecy that gave people suffering that kind of uh, state oppression the hope that God was going to come and destroy the Roman Empire once and for all. And leaders of the church that later called itself Orthodox, said that the other Revelation texts were heretical and false, perhaps because they didn't seem to support the church these leaders claimed to represent. But you see that John's book of Revelation turns out to be a multi-purpose revelation. You could really plug it in to almost any conflict that you engage in. Um, and for thousands of years, people have applied it to their own lives. So before opening up our discussion, I want to show just a, a small sample, and I would love to hear from people who have heard of other applications of this remarkable vision that John has of cosmic war, uh, the war of the forces of good against evil. So these are just a few ways that the book has been read. This, this example comes from the 15th century, um, from... 
the time when, when the plague called the Black Death was going through Europe, about 30% of the population were dying. And the artist of the Duke of Berry pictured this as the first horseman of the apocalypse, saying this must be the beginning of the end of time. This is the, the, the one on the white horse wielding the sword, bringing death all over the world. Not long after that, uh, when Martin Luther's revolution divided the Christian world, um, Martin Luther had said in 1522 that he didn't like the book of Revelation. He said it, it doesn't belong there. It doesn't have Christ in it. But later he realized how he could use it against the Catholic Church, and he found it very useful. So his friend, Lucas Cronach, drew many uh, woodcuts like this with the, uh, the whore riding on the seven-headed beast as the Pope of Rome. And, and um, if you look at the Luther Bible in its original version, you will see that in the Apocalypse, these pictures by Lucas Cronach are inserted so that you happen, as a reader, to know exactly who the whore of Babylon is. It's, it's going to be the Catholic Church. Uh, unless, of course, you're a Catholic. And, and this is <laughs> Luther's first Catholic biographer, pictures L Luther as the seven-headed beast uh, in the frontispiece of his biography. Later, during the times of Napoleon, Napoleon was seen as the beloved son of the devil. And this language and this, these images were read in terms of the Napoleonic Wars. In this country, in the horror of the Civil War, the book of Revelation was intensely read by people on both sides. This is a southern cartoon of Lincoln being strangled by the beast, which is the Union, uh, being destroyed by the Union, and the horror of that war seen as the beginning of the end of time. And this, you know, uh, is, is the famous northern war song... Because, uh, whoops, sorry, I'm going to try to stop it. <laughs> um, the, the author of this, of this famous uh, war song, Julia Ward Howe, saw uh, the Battle of Armageddon, the Battle of the End of Time, as taking place in the camps between the southern and the northern armies of that terrible war. And it was seen as a punishment for the sin of slavery by the president, of course, uh, Abraham Lincoln. At the same time, in, in London, uh, some were seeing London as Babylon, and of course, Thomas Hobbes wrote his famous book, Leviathan, talking about the great monster that was contemporary society. Uh, during World War II, this is Dr. Seuss, right? Dr. Seuss's political cartoon with Hitler as the great beast uh, being petted here by Lindbergh, um, who doesn't get it. <laughs> and then 
also you you could see that on the other side of the war because this imagery is so malleable because the imagery is so powerful and it works so viscerally it can be read on both sides there's a book called the holy reich that talks about how joseph goebbels uh, wrote propaganda for adolf hitler saying the dritte reich the third kingdom uh, the third millennium was the millennium of Christ's kingdom, which was initiated by Adolf Hitler. And there was a great deal of propaganda that, that um, Hitler's, uh, Hitler's uh, followers tried to persuade both Lutherans and Catholics, and with quite a bit of success in many cases, that Hitler was initiating the final uh, kingdom of Christ. And then you have this. This music is, is uh, written on the other side. It was written by Olivier Messiaen, French composer, a Catholic. He was imprisoned in a Nazi prison camp in 1941. And he said one day he walked out of the camp and he saw a rainbow. And when he saw the rainbow, he said it reminded him could turn it down a little. It reminded him of, of the book of Revelation in which you see uh, the angel standing with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. I'm going to try to turn this off. He saw uh, the book of Revelation talks about an angel that stands with a rainbow over its head and, and the angel says, and there shall be no more time. And so Messian wrote the quartet for the end of time with the instruments he had in that camp uh, and it was played for the first time for prisoners and guards because he saw this as the coming uh, of the end of time. You remember the operation called Shock and Awe not so long ago. Um... It's named that, apparently, because some people understood that the angel, the sixth angel of the book of Revelation, you recall, pours the cup of God's wrath right over the Tigris-Euphrates River, which is Babylon and, of course, is Baghdad. And the explosions and the light and the, the terrible noise and the death was understood by some to be the delivery of God's wrath, shock to the unbelievers and awe to those who understand a kind of a code. Finally, this is a different kind of use of the book of Revelation. It's been very much uh, loved among people who suffered terrible oppression. In this case, African-American preaching, uh, music, and art. This is an artist whose work I saw in the Guggenheim, James Hampton, who called himself... Uh, the director of special projects for the third millennium. And he created a throne for God and the Lamb of God, pictured from the book of Revelation. The medium was cardboard and aluminum foil. He did it in his garage. And it was, it's, a, it's quite an amazing uh, picture, uh, quite an amazing installation. And he knew, of course, that there's a, a great tradition of the songs of people who see the book of Revelation promising uh, what some people say 
um, well, they said during the Civil War that it was the slaves, the Africans, enslaved Africans, who cried out under the throne of God, how long, Lord, before you avenge our blood on the people of the earth? How long before you turn it around and those who now suffer will be the ones who reign in Christ's kingdom? Well, who's that riding? Who's that riding? Who's that riding? Hey, book of the serpents. So, with those examples, I want to stop and open up our discussion. Thank you. We got seats over here. Let's go. Oh, okay. You're right there. Right here. Ha. Um, have your religious views changed any since the writing of Gnostic Gospels? Well, of course. <laughs> I mean, this the word which was back in when was that? Now? Oh, it was a long time ago. Seventies. Yeah, uh, seventy-nine actually. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, well, I started this work because, as I said, I was deeply involved in a in, in a in a community that that was that opened up a spiritual dimension. Actually, opened up the imagination in a way that I didn't know about before. I mean, I loved poetry and music, but I, there was something about religious poetry and music and art that is particularly powerful. At least I found it so. So I began to explore that, and the work that I do is um, is an intellectual exploration, and it's a very it, it has to do with spiritual exploration as well. When I found those secret gospels, some of them struck me very deeply. And in the Gospel of Thomas, where Jesus says, "If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you." And I thought, hey, you know, you don't have to believe that. It just happens to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 it, and there was a lot of power in that kind of tradition. So there I found an opening to more understanding of a wider range mm-hmm. of this tradition than, than was ever part of the mainstream tradition. And I think we need a wider range. So Thomas was declared heretical, or, or what happened to his book, basically, back then? I mean, you had to discover it in a cabinet somewhere, it sounds like. Well, all of these were mm. discovered in a cave. Um, they were in a cave in Upper Egypt. These were burial caves that had been used for 4,000 years by, you know, in Egypt. But they were near three monasteries. Uh, they're burial caves for people, and then there was also records in them. So they, you have the six-foot-high urn with this stuff in it. Well, right? the burial caves had, had, had probably been emptied and mm-hmm. robbed, you okay. know, thousands of years before. Nobody stole books because they're not worth no. anything. It wasn't books. They stole, you know, treasures that were buried with some of the nobles and kings that were buried there. Uh-huh. But much later, only about 2,000 years ago, or actually less than that, 1,400, 1,500 years ago, the first monasteries were built in Egypt 
um, and three of them are very close to these caves. And we think that the people who buried uh, that jar with 52 ancient Christian texts, Gospels and Revelations and oh. dialogues with Jesus that we've never seen before Was the Book of Thomas in that collection? Yes, it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was found with these others. Mm-hmm. So all of those were found together, and they were used by monks until the Archbishop of Egypt sent a letter out and said, oh, I want you to get rid of those heretical books that you like so much. Mm. Uh, You can keep 27 of them. You can keep the ones that I'm going to list. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, the book of Acts. Those are all right. Those are the springs of salvation, in fact. Mm -hmm. But all the others, those are heretical and false. There might be nice things in them, but they'll lead you astray. So God didn't write the Bible. This guy edited the Bible. This guy (laughs) wrote the first list we have Mm. of what is our present Bible. There were other lists. What's funny about it, and this I thought was so intriguing, Stuart, and it only occurred when I wrote this book. Mm -hmm. There are many people who had lists before that, Mm -hmm. but we we now have about five of them from different bishops all over Asia Minor and Egypt. And every one of the other lists from, from Gregory Nazianzus, from Bishop Cyril of Jerusalem, written between 350 and 400, leave the book of Revelation out. Mm-hmm. There's only one of them that has it on it, and that's the one from the Archbishop of Egypt, Athanasius. And that's the one we use. So that book was the most controversial. Oh. And it keeps being applied to conflict, as you, as you pointed out, and conflict keeps, keeps happening, so the book keeps coming back to life. Well, it's not just about conflict. You're right. It is about conflict, but it it teaches a particular way of interpreting conflict, which is there's a good side and an evil side. Uh I mean, that may seem obvious, but if you read, say, the Iliad, it's about war, right? Ancient Greek poem is about war. But there's not a good side and an evil side, exactly. There are Mm. heroes on both sides. Mm. They're sort of more like sports teams, you know? Uh You have your favorite, but you know the other side does too. And they're not, there's not a good and evil side. But this book teaches you that conflict is between the good side and the evil side because you're on the good side, right? whoever you are. So Kevin Kelly raises the question, what is it about this hallucinogenic text that convinced the early church fathers that this text should be included in the Divine Bible when it was so different from the rest? There must have been somebody who was skeptical about this, saying this is weird stuff. Well, there was an earlier bishop of Egypt who's, who wrote, Dionysius of Egypt, who mm-hmm. said, this book, some people say it's unintelligible, it may, doesn't make any sense, it's not a revelation, it wasn't written by John, it's, mm-hmm. it's just absolutely heresy. Mm-hmm. And other people said, no, it's written by the disciple of Jesus, who was John, which it wasn't, we think, mm-hmm. because it's written at the end of the first century, unless he was, as tradition says, so old when he wrote it. So probably it's not written by a disciple. But I think it was treasured because the people who love it, as I said, are the people who were being persecuted. And it's a book that, you know, it's a book about war. Mm -hmm. And if you're the side that loses the war, this is a book of hope about finally the final battle will belong to God, will bring justice to the earth. So it's about, a book about hope, but it's pretty heavy-duty hope. Uh, 
mine enemies shall suffer unto endless darkness, and uh, that makes me very cheerful. It's a book about vengeance, but I, I, mm. I, you know, I was thinking, it's true, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people know that it's certainly the case. But I, I don't know. I think any of us who would have mm-hmm. lived through a war the way John did would have a lot more empathy with the writing of this book than those of us who have been lucky enough not That's to. That's fair, yeah. So Kevin Kelly asked the question, um, how might the modern world, the West at least, the Christian part of the world, um, be different if Revelation had not been included in the Bible? So what would have been, how does the, the Bible end before you get to Revelation? What's going on just before that? I'm too ignorant. That's an interesting question. I think if you had some of these other books of Revelation, they do speak about the human race as a whole. They might have included one of those. As a yeah, finishing. I mean, as, as a, a promise that somehow just as all human beings come from God according to Genesis, mm-hmm. all will eventually return. I mean, that was a vision that, say, the theologian, Christian Egyptian origin had articulated, and it was very widespread before his views were declared heresy. And this book became part of the canon. There's a question. Every generation thinks, seems to think they live at the end of history. Does global warming and other existential threats make our apocalyptic ideas somehow you know, keep being them current? Um, I mean, when you and I both got out of Stanford in the 60s, we were just worried about how overpopulation was going to be the end of the world, and that's that. And now we're seeing that climate change is going to be the end of the world, and that's that. And it's not so much in the good guys, bad guys, but this end-of-the-world stuff seems to have its own attraction. What is that? Well, that's true, you know, and this book may also influence the way people think about the end of time because if you look at any interpretation of the book of Revelation, I was fascinated. You, you could write a history of, uh, of the Christian parts of the world through the way they've read this book. Um, Everyone who reads it thinks that they're just on the cusp of the end. And if you look on the internet, you'll see there are people who are talking about the end is just about here. And that's because the book is written that way. I think John had that conviction that, you know, it was about to happen because Jesus said it would happen really soon. So here are these guys. Almost all the stories you told are somebody's feeling really depressed and suicidal and they go out in the desert. <laughs> and they either eat some plants or they don't, but they're out in the desert. The desert's you know, going to kill them if they aren't careful anyway. And so they're dealing with their own personal end time in some fashion. So is this some kind of cosmicizing of basically stepping up to one's own death? It could well be. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when people talk about it. I've talked to some people, and I'd love to know from other people what they've... Mm-hmm. interpretations they've seen of this book. It's also a book about hope. It's as, it's though, it's, it's a book, it's, it's as though you take all your worst nightmares mm. of plague and war and atomic war and destruction and chaos and death everywhere and you say, just wrap it up in a huge nightmare. Mm-hmm. And you've got this book. And then at the end, it's not like you have bodies all over the stage. Not like a Shakespeare tragedy. No, I mean, then... The new Jerusalem descends, and there's this glorious new world. So it's like saying you, you may go into a terrifying tunnel that leads you toward death, and some light will come. 
So it is also a book about hope. Well, prophecies, if I understand them right, prophecies seem to be about kind of, um, there's kind of, things are going to get really terrible unless you do what I say, uh, unless you agree with me, or things are going to get, it will finally work out and get really, really good if you do what I say. So this is heavy-duty propaganda that, you know, my agenda is the one that will save you, and uh, here's what not being saved means, and it's pretty fierce, so uh, stick with me. Yeah, I, I do have a problem with this book, I must tell you. <laughs> my problem with it is that when John of Patmos talks about who's going to go into the lake of eternal fire and burn forever, mm. these are his words. He says, the filthy, the evildoers, the abominable, the, the sexually promiscuous, the, the dogs. Now, that could be practically anybody you don't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you look at say, the Gospel of Matthew. There's a parable attributed to Jesus in which he talks about the Day of Judgment Mm -hmm. and who goes into God's kingdom. And it's the story about the sheep and the goats, you know. And he says to one group that they will be invited into the kingdom. And and he says, because when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you took care of me. Mm -hmm. And they say, well... We never saw you that way. What, what are you talking about? And then the famous answer, whenever you did it to the least of my family, you did it to me. So the people, according to the story of Matthew, that Jesus says go into God's kingdom, are those who show compassion mm-hmm. on those who in need. And those who don't get there are people who just don't. But it's not about... Is that so it's all about acts. It's yeah. all about specific acts. It's not about calling people names. This book calls people names. That's why mm. both the Nazis and the anti-Nazis mm-hmm. and, and the South and the North in the same conflict can use the same book against each other, I think. Anyway, that's a thought. So there's a whole bunch of people who think uh, end time. There, there's a set of people, probably not in this room, who think that 2012 is the end of uh, the long count for the Mayans and that's it, it's all over, right? And uh, at long now, we're worried that we say this is a ten. Well, yeah, that keeps happening. Uh, the ten thousand year clock. Often, the sort of second, que- the first question is, "Are you serious?" Um, the second question is, "Well, what happens in the ten thousandth year?" And you know, we're we're trying to say actually ten thousand years plus. Uh, you, know, you get some, you know, soften it. And we have the same thing with, I do a lot of work with scenarios with Global Business Network. And, you know, we're going to do the scenarios for 2030. And all the scenarios go to 2030 and then the world ends. Uh, <laughs> there's no sense of continuity. And I'm just getting this weird sense of the attractions of, of some kind of finality, of some kind of point in time where we can say, well, that's it. And for a long time, uh, the year 2000, you know, there's a Y2K version of the apocalypse. Uh, there was uh, all of the things that are about the future always said the year 2000. And Danny Hillis said the future was getting shorter by one year per year all the way through the 80s and 90s. And what is that attraction of a specific end time? Well, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe people here have some suggestions about it. I mean, I do think it's because we all do have an end time. And, and that is a, an awareness that we have. And I... 
Here's no? Kevin with questions, and you can stay if you want to. No, he's way too Christian to stay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow. These are long questions, actually. People get very... While I'm perusing these, um, this book came out when, a year ago? Yes, this book came out uh, about six months ago, my book. That is called Revelations. And, and I got some flack from... I was some, about to ask, some, what's, been, what's been happening in the world uh, oh. in the world in relation to the book and to you in relation to the world in relation to the book since then? Well, I, I do get... A lot of people think they really have the interpretation to this book. <gasps> and, and so they're offended by you screwing yeah, around with that. Yeah, and one of that. them said, you know, how, she's so ignorant. I mean, she calls it Revelations. It's not Revelations. It's singular, the book of Revelation. And, of course, the point of the title was to say, hey, there, there's not just one. Uh, there are lots of them. And, and that's partly what the book is about. Um, but others have, have consigned me to hell along with an interesting... Company. Is that a first? I haven't even been consigned to hell no, before. No, no, it's happened yeah. before. <laughs> <laughs> is it extra because Revelations has all this emotional weight? I think this book is very powerful. And mm. one of the reasons I wrote it, I, you know, I, was, I told you that I've been thinking about the history of religion since I read about religion, and I have found it very compelling myself when I was told it wasn't. Um... So I think, why is it in the 21st century that there's still religion when, you know, a lot of us were brought up to think, well, when people are scientific enough, it'll just wither and go away. Mm -hmm. Then I was thinking uh, about the work of some neurologists. I thought about the work of Antonio Damasio, who teaches at USC. Uh, He wrote a book called Descartes' Error, and it's about overvaluing rational thought. Uh, You know, thinking rationality is more important than it is. And he says it's really driven. Much of what we think of as rationality is driven by emotion. And I thought, this book, what's the appeal of this book? Uh It's not ethics. It's not ideas. Uh It's not conceptual. It's about hope. It's about fear. It's it's driven, I think, by emotion and imagination and hope. But it's not conceptual. And I think that much of Mm-hmm. of religious tradition is like that. It's much deeper than rational thought. Well it's, well, it's interesting because I think when people encounter this language, the ferocity of this language and the, and the terrible things that occur, and then it sort of works out okay at the end. Um, for some people. Yeah, for <laughs> a few lucky people. Uh, that part doesn't get across so well. The The it sort of reminds me of Dante and Faust. I mean, Dante's hell is really, really interesting, and his heaven is a great big bore. And Faust had the same problem, or, or Goethe had the same problem with Faust, and Mephistopheles is really interesting, and all of this stuff of the student getting, you know, uh, making a pact with the devil and all that. And then when things finally work out, and it goes on endlessly, in heaven at the end, it's unplayable on the stage and unreadable in a book. So uh, hell is interesting, and heaven is boring. What what have we just learned? <laughs> yes, and you know, when I was looking at how this book got into the Bible in the fourth century, it's put in there by a bishop who decided that the people who go to the lake of fire are 
are Christians who don't agree with him. <laughs> and the people who go into heaven are the Orthodox. So if you go in, you know, many churches, uh, many parts of the world, and I was thinking of Europe and Latin America, and well, the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel, if you walk out the door, what do you see? When you walk out the door, you see the damned and the saved. You see the last judgment. So you're supposed to remember when you walk out of the church, mm-hmm. you know, you better think about that. And, and so it becomes a book about who's in and who's out. And that's, that's part of the power of this book, the way it's been used in so many situations. And it's part of the limitations of it, too, I think. Irina Melnick has a question. Um, you've drawn in, elsewhere in your writings and talking that there's some connection kind of with the Gospel of Thomas and a sort of Buddhist uh, perspective on things. And so this question is, are there other religions that have Book of Revelation-like ferocity? Well, that's interesting, but let me just say there are a lot of Revelation texts that aren't ferocious. Mm. One of them, for example, speaking of Buddhism, in the same collection is called Allogenes, and the word in Greek means the stranger or someone from another race. And Allogenes is a text... It's not Jewish. It's not Christian. It's, it's a book. It, it's a text about meditation and how to meditate. So Allogenes is taught by a divine being. He sits for a hundred years, and then he sits for another hundred years. And, and he recognizes the divine that's in him. That's very inspiring for people who sit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a long time. <laughs> and, and it's a beautiful text, and it looks very much like a Buddhist text, actually. Huh. And there are others. There's a hermetic text called the Discourse on the Eighth and the Ninth, which is Egyptian. And the imagery is that of the god Hermes in his Egyptian form uh, as Thoth. And it's a text about how you bring your mind into the higher levels of consciousness. And it's, it's, again, it's a very beautiful text. It's about coming to recognize the divine within oneself. So these are very different, and they're not ferocious. Mm-hmm. And that's really quite different. Question from Richard. How is Revelation's Armageddon imagery helpful in promoting long-term thinking? To me, it shows the dangers of magical thinking we need to overcome. That's an interesting comment. Is the Bible helpful for long-term thinking, other parts of it? That's an interesting question. Some of it is, mm-hmm. and some of it isn't. Well, you know, the begats go on for a long time. That gets... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's an interesting question. And I suppose people develop a certain patience trying to memorize all that stuff. Um, so Kevin asked a question, what's the, what's the future of the book of Revelation? Um, He's a Christian who doesn't much like it. So he says, what would have to happen to diminish its power? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know if you can diminish its power. It's a very powerful book. I found I was working on it. I, I came to really respect the emotional and psychological How do you mean? What, what got you? Well, I would start dreaming about it. I mean, these images ah. are, are very vivid. I mean, it's not for nothing that all those painters mm. and the movies... And the songs and the music and the mm. preaching that's come out of that book, it's enormous tradition mm-hmm. um, because of the power of those images. They're very primordial. And they do come out of the prophets, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, mm-hmm. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. It's basically Jewish uh, prophetic tradition. And this writer 
sees himself as a prophet, sees Jesus as a prophet. It's very much a part of that prophetic tradition. Andrew asks, and we were asking you beforehand, if you were editing the Bible, um, what, you know, Thomas Jefferson did a version of the Bible a while back, and it's actually pretty interesting stuff. He, he took out everything he thought that what didn't involve the real Jesus, but took out the stuff he thought was kind of added on to make some kind of ecclesiastical point or something. Um, there's stuff that's not in the Bible that you would like to see people pay attention to and, and heed, and some stuff in the Bible, maybe this is, book is one of them, that you just assume have back in the cabinet. Elaine Pagel's Bible would have what in it? Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> I like some of the things that are already in there. I mean, mm -hmm. you mean the whole Bible? Well, let's do the whole thing. What the hell? Yeah. Genesis. We've got some time. <laughs> Genesis, Exodus. Start, start with Old the Testament, prophets, and we'll finish the, up anew, the, and then we'll the call it an evening. Books. Yeah. <laughs> and I very much like the Gospel of Mark. Um, mm -hmm. The Gospel of John is interesting. Not so much, though. Um, Matthew and Luke have some interesting things. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Gospel um, of Mary Magdalene, what's that? The Gospel of Mary Magdalene is a very interesting book in which, well, these other texts are written as secret Gospels, and they're said that people had conversations with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Peter is talking to Mary Magdalene and says, Sister, you know, we know that the Lord loved you more than other women, so maybe he told you some things he didn't tell us. Why don't you tell us about that? And she says, well, yes, Peter, he told me things he didn't tell other people. In fact, he didn't tell you. And then Peter gets very angry. And she says, and, and, and I saw the Lord in a dream last night, and he, he told me this. And then, unfortunately, the text is broken. <laughs> but she talks about seeing uh, the, powers, um, the, the powers that threaten the soul after mm -hmm. death. And how one encounters the powers after death. It's rather like the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Hmm. And, and that one has to confront the powers uh, without fear. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, she tells this whole vision that Jesus gave her. And then Peter says, I don't believe the Lord said this. I think these are just strange ideas. I think she's making it all up. And then Mary weeps and says, my brother Peter, what do you think? You think I'm lying about the Lord? And yes, he does. Um, and then... Another disciple breaks in and says, Peter, you've always been hot-tempered like, like our enemies. I mean, the Lord obviously loved her and gave her uh, secret teaching. So, you know, why don't you just be quiet and we'll all go out and preach. And that's what they do. But that book isn't in the New Testament because the idea of women being disciples, mm -hmm. not just as in Dan Brown's fiction, you know, the wife and lover of Jesus, mm -hmm. uh, sort of male fiction about Mary Magdalene, who always appears as this Do you have an opinion prostitute. on that? Were they, were they an item? <laughs> well, that's an old legend mm -hmm. because she is conflated with a prostitute in, in the writings of one right. of the early popes. Right. Probably uh. because many people regard her as a saint or as one of the major disciples. You mm -hmm. see, on the Mount of Olives, there's a, there's a Russian Orthodox Church of Mary Magdalene. Um, but she's often not regarded that way in Western churches. And, and you know, the Pope says that women can't be priests because, because Jesus didn't choose any woman. But 
that's why this book is particularly. Well, all of the religions of the book are pretty heavy on women, it seems like. That's true, they are. Uh, is this because this is an agricultural period, or it's the Mideast, or it's the desert, or what, what, what's all that about? Ancient culture. All ancient Roman culture. culture is that way, and Greek, and... Were the old Buddhists, uh, were, you know, some of them that far back? The Buddhists back, were, were not so great either. Okay. Right? Some of them are, have changed the traditions. Okay, so that's a good reason to have uh, the Book of Mary Magdalene in, in your Bible. What else? Thunder Perfect Mind. These are, these are probably mystical texts about the presence of the divine in everyone. Huh. And, and I probably would have books that are not just Christian, like Thunder Perfect Mind, which is not a Christian book. But uh, it's not a Christian poem. It's um, from that period? Yes, it's probably a, from a, a, a poem of the goddess Isis. Uh, my colleague Toni Morrison has written four songs that she took from this book, mm-hmm. which I've heard performed. They're quite beautiful mm-hmm. because she found this religiously powerful. Tony was raised Catholic, um, and she found in that book something about the divine presence. These other books called Tremorphic Photonoia and, um, are about the feminine manifestation of the divine. In Jewish mysticism, as many of you know, uh, the feminine manifestation of God is understood to be the one that's imminent in the world. And that's why many of these texts speak about a feminine presence of the divine, either understood as, as Sophia, as, mm-hmm. as spirit, ruach, in, feminine in both Greek and Hebrew, mm-hmm. uh, or Shekinah, which means the presence, which is also a feminine word in Hebrew. So it's understood as a feminine aspect of the divine. And that's many of these poems and revelation texts speak about that. So we have these two Marys. Um, Mary the friend and Mary the mother. Mary the mother, that feminine, made it big time, um, right? I mean, yes, and the Gospel of Philip talks about all of these Marys as manifestations of the Holy Spirit or divine wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, in, in the Gnostic Gospels, I'd quoted from the Gospel of Philip that says, Jesus loved Mary more than all the disciples and kissed her often on her, well, they reconstruct mouth, but it's actually a blank. We don't know. Uh, but, and, and that's why Dan Brown took off and wrote that, you know, Jesus loved Mary Magdalene and they were sexually involved. Hmm. But if he'd read the book, the, the Gospel of Philip, he would have seen that Mary Magdalene and the mother of Jesus mm-hmm. are, all, are all manifestations of divine wisdom and the Holy Spirit. It's a mystical book. Okay, so it sounds like this... Uh, a bunch of guys are responsible for this the Bible that we mostly see in churches, and uh, it would be nice to have a female-edited version, which well, just draws out the rest of the balance it that may I think be, you're But these of. are really more about how to find access to the divine, right? Okay. And the suggestion in these mystical texts, as in the Gospel of Thomas, is that you could do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why the monks love them, because these are about access to, to, to coming closer to God. Um, there are ways to do that. That's why these texts were all collected by Christian monks until the bishop told them to get rid of these books. Uh, and somebody disobeyed him and buried them instead to preserve them. So part, I mean, our generation has been dealing with do we think, do we like religion or do we like spiritual practice? And what you've been saying about you can do it yourself is on the side of spiritual practice. And over on the other side we have of the whore of Babylon, the Pope, 
saying, uh, no, actually, it's, you know, there's this apparatus, and you're supposed to be part of it, and then all is well. And there's others uh, saying, you know, end time comes, if you're not part of this other apparatus, you will be left behind and burned forever. Um, is this argument going somewhere, or is it a perpetual Well, one? These, these kinds of texts were, were censored, and I think it's because they do suggest you don't need to go through a priest or a church, or, you know, you don't need that intermediary. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why they were loved by many people. Mm-hmm. And that's, this movement was very different. Um, in the beginning of the Christian movement, it, it had many more voices in it uh, than, than we now have. So you, you've been noticing that, you know, sort of social media and injustice can be imaged by almost anybody now, and then that can be broadcast. Is this a a deinstitutionalization of important things going on. Say that again. Um, <laughs> we're coming up on, uh, you can do it yourself more and more. Oh, yes. And you can do these things in relation to other people directly without going through uh, Rome or the CIA or, or religious various institutions. You know, yes. institutions. And so is in a sense, justice and, and uh, right living, um, getting grassroots in a permanent way, and that this would then answer Kevin's question, is the book of Revelation to start to back off if we aren't having to institutionalize our conflicts? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think these really are a lot of what was lost in Christian tradition. When Christians say, you know, if you don't belong to our church, you're going to hell, that kind of thing. The kind of thing that mm-hmm. I heard when I was in one of those churches. Um, I was thinking of, I, I know some Trappist monks in Colorado, in, in Snowmass, Colorado, and and they asked me to come and talk about the Gospel of Thomas. Huh. So I said, well, I won't talk about it. I'll just give it to you. So I gave them, you know, it's only about seven pages. And the monks loved it because it's a contemplative text. It's a mystical text. And they instantly got that. And, and they had been going to the Buddhists at Naropa mm. to find Buddhist texts hmm. about spirituality and about developing a deeper sense of the spiritual life because I think much of of what Christian tradition had once developed was censored mm-hmm. in the first four centuries. And it was thrown out. So they have been going to, you know, read Buddhist, read the Lotus Sutra and other things like that because those aspects of their tradition had been censored. So you sent them the book, and did you go and talk to them anyway? Oh, yeah. Well, what? I went and sat with them, and we talked about it. Yeah, what did they talk about and ask about? Well... One of them, the, 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 the teacher, William, said, I think the Holy Spirit must have kept these books hidden because if they had been found a thousand years ago, they would have been burned. Um, and another, Thomas Keating, who founded the Centering Prayer Movement, uh, sees them mm-hmm. as part of, part of the Christian tradition or sees at least some of them as part of that. I can't speak for Thomas um, entirely, but... We talked about the Gospel of Thomas. You say that, and you make me think that in this current uh, showdown between American nuns and the Pope, that the Pope is not going to win. Well, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Here, here. Thank you for coming.
This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.